Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Experts have recently made a startling claim. The United States will need to invest more than $4.5 trillion by 2025 to fix its failing infrastructure. Debates over ways to generate revenue, whether to invest in new technology or repair existing systems, and how to achieve infrastructure development without promoting environmental degradation remain ongoing. Jeff Burr, Greta Joins, and Brian McKean, in a discussion moderated by Mark Begich, discuss ways the 116th Congress is likely to address infrastructure and the challenges that lie ahead. Welcome back to another Brownstein podcast. I'm Mark Baggage, and today I'm joined by my colleagues, Jeff Burr, going to join us, and Brian McKeon. Today we're going to dive right into infrastructure, the ever-elusive package coming someday, somewhere, somehow. And I guess I am going to look at, uh, Jeff, you're, you, I'm going to have you kind of set the stage for the listeners. You're, you're fresh from being the chief of staff to the secretary of the Department of Transportation, so we assume you know the answer to this question, and that is, what's the bill going to look like? How much is each state going to get? And how are we going to pass it? How much uh, time do you have? Uh, we got 20 minutes to 25, and you get to do two minutes of it. So, no. You know, it, it seems like this is the bill that everyone talks about but never materializes. And then when it seems to be materializing, something else happens in the world of politics, and then it goes off the rails. I think so the, what's happening here? The most common welcome question, to Brownstein. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. I think the most common question I got when I was at DOT that I hated to have to answer is, is it infrastructure week yet? Uh, that, that's become quite a joke. Uh, when are the it, trucks going to roll down the street and park outside right. on the lawn? And, and uh, you know, I think the, the thing about infrastructure, uh, I, I think the administration and others have quickly realizes that it's something that everyone thinks is very easy and it's actually incredibly complicated. Just to summarize in, in a succinct way the problem, the American Society of Civil Engineers says the U.S. will need to invest $4.5 trillion in the next six years just to repair the infrastructure that we have in existence now. And this is the group on an annual basis reviews kind of what it looks like and then they give us a grade usually, which is never A or B. Uh, not not for a long C, time, right? It's right. like a D minus or something. And, and you look at the rest of the globe, and there there are countries um, in Europe and in Asia that do get A ratings, and and they fund their infrastructure um, in, in varying ways, but it's not in the way that we have typically in the last several decades approached funding our infrastructure. China, for example, has kind of a top down command and control. Uh, where they really just fund all of the infrastructure, sometimes infrastructure that's not even needed. And then you have Europe, where there's a variety of models, but they do more innovative finance. They look at things like public-private partnerships and asset recycling that we don't have to get into, but they invite the private sector to participate more than we do here um, in the U.S. in their infrastructure. So when we start looking at what are we going to do, the real fight becomes over two things. Where are we going to get the revenue we need in order to repair and innovate our infrastructure? And who's going to pay what? What's the federal share? What's the state share? And are we going to welcome the private sector? And part of that discussion is that the fact that the trust fund is short of money all the time. The highway it used tr- to be strong. It's not like the FAA one, which is very strong and funded. This is a 
problem? The highway trust fund is set, to, depending on whose estimates you use, set to run out of money in 2021 or 2022. Um, that's where formula funds go out to states, and they generally get to prioritize how they're going to invest that into their infrastructure. And the federal government and Congress need to come up with a way to generate uh, enough revenue just to keep that solvent. But also, if we want to do anything over and above kind of the status quo and maintaining these federal highways and other things that currently exist, they need to come up with new ways to generate revenue. Greta, let me ask you, I mean, when this comes up, it seems like every time we talk about infrastructure, it's, it's a little different than just Democrats versus Republicans or vice versa. It's, it's kind of regional. Yeah, And I it's would... also topic, right? Bridges versus roads or rail versus – and what is infrastructure? Does it include broadband? Does it not? Yeah, I think to to that point, the urban and rural concerns when, when you talk about infrastructure are very different. And they're also regional, right? The, right. An infrastructure issue in Florida is not going to be the same as it is in Kansas. Mm-hmm. And you have to do different types of resiliency and various things depending on where you are in the country and this sort of – weather and other issues that are going to be impactful in those communities. So I, that that's a real concern, trying to develop any sort of national framework for infrastructure when you have to accommodate all those different interests is, mm-hmm. to Jeff's point, very, very difficult. And uh, broadband has been something that any number of members want to include in an infrastructure. Into infrastructure. And waterways is another one I know that's percolating right, at that big right. time. But, you know, for, for broadband, there's a lot of people out there um, who want to have a dedicated source of revenue for mm-hmm. broadband expansion. Where does that money come from? You know, it's probably not going to come from a gas tax increase. Right. So, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, the federal government is innovative in their ways to tax, sure. but that would be very innovative. That, that would be very, that, that would be definitely new. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, I think the more that members get involved in this, I think the more that they're going to realize how difficult it is. And I think it's especially difficult in a new Congress with a new speaker and a bunch of members a lot of new members. who've never done this before. Right. And a lot of them have never served in elected office right. before. So it's not like they have the benefit of having worked on these issues at the state or the local level. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these topics are new to them and they probably have never conceived of them before. And the complexity of it. I know this is one of those that there's a lot of constituency groups, Brian, that come out of the woodwork. I mean, I know as a former mayor, we loved infrastructure. Oh, you yeah. know, mayors loved building buildings, roads, anything you can put money on the table and have cones on the road. And then put your name on and it. And then put your name on it. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. You know, and so mayors get really worked up about this. Then you have all the contracting group. Then you have labor and then you have people who just when there's a crisis that occurs, right? When we saw, you know, example bridge fall in Minnesota that year, and people just got got to it. So, what's the tug of war going to be like in Congress? What's it going to? How are they going to sort this out, or will they not sort it out? And will we just go to a highway transportation bill and kind of? Add a couple of years and kick it down the road. Well, it's it's a really, never enough money. You're totally right, and you make a really good point about the Minneapolis bridge collapse. Greta and I were just in Minneapolis, and I walked oh. across one of the bridges across the the Mississippi on on Sunday morning, and, and recalled back to that horrific um, incident um, a handful of years ago. And mm-hmm. you know, our, our our grades are still today what they were years ago, and that we're we're not making the investments. And, and Senator, you also make a, a really great uh, point as far as you know, 
the the regular there are regular infrastructure authorization bills that move through the Congress every number of years. The transportation bill, the water bill, bill, and ultimately we're not providing enough resources through those bills to keep up with the backlogs of projects that need to be done, whether it's harbor maintenance or whether it's uh, uh, river dredging, harbor dredging, building new highways, etc. Um, so you've got we're in the situation where the, the 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 normal course of business doesn't provide enough funds and resources to keep up with the backlogs. We we find ourselves in a situation where we're contemplating larger infrastructure packages like like we're contemplating now, and and it becomes more and more difficult because it's not just the roads and bridges and the waterways, folks. It's going to be as Greta said, uh, broadband. So you're going to have the telecom industry. Um, lobbying on that, it's going to be. Is, is it schools? Yeah. Um, our Which schools. Is always a, our schools have yeah. similar grades to our our highway um, system. So, you know, do the teachers get involved? Do the school administrators get involved? Um, do other local elected officials say we don't need you know road improvements in 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 our community? Our schools are literally crumbling, and we need money to rebuild those. So it becomes, like you said, this tug of war, and. We've got to invest a lot of money. We're not going to be able to do it all at once. So some folks are going to have to lose in this scenario or not get all of what they might want to have. Right. Jeff, it looks like you're about to want to say something. I wasn't sure. So I, no, I was just going to add the, yeah. the one other tension that's in this is that it takes so long to complete infrastructure projects that right now we're at a unique point in time where we're confronting innovative technologies like you look in the rail sector, for example, of things like maglev or hyperloop, things like that, do we invest in these new technologies or do we repair the old 19th century rail technology that we currently have that will take 10, 20, 30 years? And by the time that that's deployed, it's so incredibly out of date. So there's a real tension between do we modernize or do we repair the out-of-date technology? You know, I, I recall when I was in the Senate, I, I had a battle with Senator Boxer over a, what I thought was a good idea, and it did end up in there. It was proposed, I think, by the Republicans, and it was to give projects under $10 million uh, less regulatory review, you know, because it's a small project in the bigger sense of things, and you could expedite, kind of get these things moving. And I thought it was a good idea, uh, you know, and I think that is one of the big issues, what you've just described, is sometimes you can say, I want this project because of this issue, and it takes 10 years to get on the drawing board. Why bring that up is because Alaska, who, where I was a senator, experienced an earthquake recently. A federal highway ramp road going onto a major road collapsed, and this is in the winter. In 48 hours, it was rebuilt. I drove on that road recently. Looked good to me. And I always like to give this example when I tell people, we now have a layer on layer on layer of process to do a project. And the example I always like to tell people is Disneyland was built in one year from an orange field to a completed city. I mean, that's what happened. Do you think is whatever happens in infrastructure, let's assume for a moment there's one bill or maybe the combination of all these other bills, do you think there's going to be a push to try to figure that piece of the equation out? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there is. The administration's trying to do everything they can with their existing authorities, but I think they need greater authority to do the sort of things you talk about. We proved with the Minnesota Bridge, or when, when I was at DOT, we had an Atlanta bridge collapse mm-hmm. that was 
a matter of weeks back up and running um, in record time because when there's an emergency and we can get all these waivers, you can get things done very, very quickly. Uh, you know, another thing that happened while I was at DOT uh, in your state of Alaska was the Sterling Highway project. Oh, yeah. We finally completed the permitting for that project. It had begun 50 years mm-hmm. earlier. It took them mm-hmm. 50 years to permit the Sterling Highway. And that's just not good for the economy. It's not good for safety. It's I, not I good drove for on anything. that recently. Yeah. It's a better highway. <laughs> I, well, I don't well, doubt it. And it's, and it's another central tension between development and environmental protection. Right. That, this is where you can get a partisan divide, yes, right? It, In yes. this kind of bill. You're, you're totally right. And I think um, you know, these issues have, have become incrementally improved, I think. And I think, I think Democrats would, would say that from Map 21 a couple of years ago and the most recent versions of, of the transportation authorization bill that regularly gets done in the normal course. But there are plenty of folks that believe it's not enough and we need to do more. And that's going to be a central tension um, when legislation actually gets written because you're going to have some folks wanting to put in waivers, expedited timelines, et cetera, but you're going to have the environmental community saying, stop, halt, no. Right. You would think, and I'll, I'll ask you, Greta, this, you would think that CBO, which is like the magical room that has no windows, <laughs> makes up numbers and uh, has results and tells you how a bill can be funded, that if you could argue the point that you can streamline the process of construction, you'll have more money available to construct more projects. Sure. I mean, that would be, I would think CBO would say, hey, we'll, we'll put a value to that. I mean, does that make, am I like... <laughs> thinking off the wall that I mean that's that's a very sensible proposal so it'll probably <laughs> Never ne- go nowhere. Um you know I I th- I think it's difficult I think especially post green new deal and the botched rollout of that mm-hmm. um I think the environmentalists are going to be looking for and it, when I say environmentalists I mean those members of Congress and outside groups right. are going to be looking for a must pass bill where they can attach some of the issues that they are passionate about a transportation bill would be something that I think that they would ultimately w- want to be involved in and I think that makes the the, the type of idea that you're talking about very makes difficult sense. I also think kind of just a broader issue when you talk about infrastructure and transportation projects, the fact that we don't have um, earmarks anymore. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of members who can own a project like they used to be able to. And I think that really advanced a lot more critical projects and communities that wouldn't have gotten attention as part of a larger package. And, you know, there's positive and, and negatives to earmarks, but I really think when you when you talk about a large infrastructure bill, it would be a real benefit, and a lot of members would own the own the bill more if they could have right. something that they they knew was theirs and was their idea in the bill, as opposed to just kind of these broader pots of money. And if you don't have earmarks, one of the, what I learned in the Senate, the word of bill was the trick. Yeah, because you could. Not earmark, but earmark. Right, exactly. And, and, you know, if you're doing a transportation bill, you might make the argument, like the FAA bill, too, is you you wrap these into it. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not going to get earmarks, you do have to have this ownership. And if it's just, oh, I'm going to get a block grant, I don't know what roads are going to be produced, and it's left to my governor who maybe they don't like or they do, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Exactly. I mean, being from Illinois, uh, we all remember (laughs) when Rod Blagojevich put signs all over the state saying that these were his projects. Right. They all came down real quick when he went to jail. But, you know, it was (laughs) – but I do do think that, you know, it's – when when you give someone else ownership 
over what these projects end up looking like versus the members that are actually crafting the legislation. I think you just have a different level of engagement and yeah. a different level of passion for the issue. Yeah, there's a real lack of trust there. I think I, I would go so far as to say you, you'll get a fast act reauthorization without earmarks, but you're never going to get a big infrastructure bill without spelling right. out the projects. People don't trust that the money is going to trickle down to their district and, and have very, very strong feelings about particular projects they do and don't want um, funded. I, I got almost as many calls at DOT from people, uh, members of Congress, asking us not to fund a certain project in their district as I did ones to fund a project. I mean, and you want, you know, when you hear from your constituency, you want to respond to them. And if you can't, then you're, they're going to look at you as ineffective and you try to explain the rules. They don't really care. They just want that road or that bridge or whatever. I guess, you know, Brian, this, you brought it up, Greta, on the Green New Deal. And that is, it, and I, I think I agree with you in this, and that is, there's a group that's going to want something in this bill. And so is that, and I'll, I'll look to maybe Brian and Greta to respond to this, and that is, do you think that could potentially drag it down? Because you've got a big group in the House, the Progressive Caucus, and you have a lot less moderates in the Democratic Caucus, even though it's in the Senate side, but the Senate has the 60 rule and all that. What do you think happens here? Am it, I just saying doesn't make sense? Or no, no, it's it, going to be a problem. It's a big problem. I think I saw some comments today from the speaker trying to merge the Green New Deal with an infrastructure package. She threw out, I believe, it was a billion dollar number and said something to the effect of "It's the Green Ideal." I don't know exactly <laughs> how that. It's the merging of the world. How words. that works, but a lot of it is it, it is messaging because you know let's let's be honest about you know transportation infrastructure bills. Um, water bills, water resources bills, they can be climate mitigation bills. Oh, absolutely. Um, you, know, you, you brought up Senator the Box. The bill is you, a great you example. You brought up Senator Boxer earlier, and um, you know, I worked for her for, for a number of years, and she worked with Jim Inhofe, um, who was I remember a, that. <laughs> a, a, open, Not a <laughs> an open climate denier, <laughs> and she would, um, we would never put the word climate in a bill, in the, in the transportation bill, or the, the word of bill, but the staff would work with outside parties and identify the greenhouse gas emission reductions that would result from the bill. And she would message that to her Democratic colleagues, but would never bring it up um, in, in EPW hearings. And the two of them worked very successfully to pass these bills. Inhofe viewed it from the perspective of this is jobs and this is investment, and Boxer liked those two as well, but also liked the fact that, that there were opportunities to reduce um, emissions through that. So how do you message that? Can you get the progressives and still get conservatives who may want to see you know, shovels in the ground um, in their districts? That's going to be a central question. And I do think, um, to Jeff's point earlier, I, you know, I think a solution to this would be, you know, a pot of the money be be used towards forward-looking, forward-thinking projects as opposed to, you know, investing more money in um, technology that maybe is not as carbon neutral. Right. And hopefully you would kind of get everyone on board. But I do think there is a rather vocal wing in the House that is going to want some sort of path forward to eliminating all fossil fuel vehicles on, you know, national highways in five years or something crazy, right? right. And so, you know, how, how do you square that circle? Right. And, and how do you get those members 
to feel that they've achieved something. I I, I think that's that's the, the trick, right? I mean, you know, the Senate, they're you know, they're really the adults in the room here, right? They mm-hmm. kind of understand how the sausage is made. We don't, we're we're not at that point yet yeah. over in the House because it's. And this is actually, we just had a conversation on trade, and it seems you know the House leads that right now, and the Senate will kind of adopt a majority of that. This is a little different. It's right. going to go back. I think the Senate will probably at some point say, here's the frame. Take what the House did, but make it a piece that potentially like Inhofe and Boxer did that year. Because I remember that. It was like you know the two most unlikely people to actually agree mm-hmm. on an infrastructure bill. Yeah, they, they passed two infrastructure bills, two word of bills. Right. Um, when they were both either chair and ranking member of the EPW committee. Yeah, which yeah. I think most people remarkable. Would, would have said, good luck uh, on that. And maybe even Bob Popcorn and waited. <laughs> well, and, and this <laughs> brings some up, did. Maybe Brian, you did. <laughs> this brings up another interesting point. And Greta hit it on it earlier, which is that the folks running these committees are new, even on, especially on the Senate side. Uh, Senator Barrasso and Senator Carper have not, um, you know, led their their respective parties. Senator Wicker and Senator Cantwell on the Commerce Committee, if there's going to be a rail piece. Um, not that they're un, not capable of doing so, but they don't have the experience of shepherding these large, vast bills where every single member wants to be able to say that they're doing something in it. Those, those are difficult propositions, and experience is helpful. And when you hit the floor with them, you're going to have hundreds of amendments, mm-hmm. and you have to yes. sort out the real deal and the ones that are show and tell. Right. And... A member may think it's a real deal, but in reality, it ain't. <laughs> well, and so. you look at you know the switch from um, party control on the House side has you going from uh, Chairman Bill Schuster to Chairman Peter DeFazio. Very different views of the world, very mm-hmm. different approaches. I think that for Schuster to oversimplify, he, he, he's what I would call a pave-the-world Republican. Yeah. <laughs> and DeFazio has... a, a, a a lot of complexities to deal with that Schuster didn't, mainly the environmental side of things, right. where he has a perspective on those that is rather strong and a constituency he has to abide. And so I, I just I wish I was more optimistic on them getting something done this year. What I'm hopeful it will happen is that there will be an effort this year that involves some aspect of a, a large climate piece that, that fails um, in the Senate or doesn't even come up for a vote in the Senate. But then now that we've got that behind us in 2020, there there's a renewed effort to try to do something that can gain broad enough consensus. So lose to win. <laughs> so, <laughs> let me ask you this from the, you know, let's shift a little bit here. Presidential, it's all happening. Um, maybe faster than people want. Hundreds of people are running. <laughs> I exaggerate there, but it sure feels like are it. You? Are I'm you? not sure I don't yet. Know. <laughs> I'm not sure yet. Um, but what do you think uh, the presidential politics and how will they play into this equation, uh, both from the Democratic side, but also from the the, the current president and running for reelection? What, what does this all do to the dynamics of any legislation or even extensions of existing legislation? Who wants to take a jab at that? I mean, a divided Congress makes it a very difficult achievement for the president before, you know, the next election. I, will he make it a priority or will he say it's a priority, but just in a list of many things? I think the president wants something to pass Congress that he can say is an infrastructure bill. Gotcha. What, what that ends is? up looking like, who knows? Right. Um, I do think on the campaign trail, it's always helpful to go stand in front of an aging bridge and say that we should fix it. And I will do that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, 
I, I think there's going to be a lot of that, um, both in the Democratic primary and on uh, President Trump's campaign. I, I'll be curious to see how that plays out on the Democratic side more than anything. You know, there's going to be a lot of questions and I think valid ones on, on how you would pay for it, what sort of environmental protections you would have and what sort of goals you would want within that package. You know, I think I think on both sides of the aisle, there there is a real desire to tackle infrastructure, but there's no concrete messaging on either the Republican or the Democratic side on the right way to do that. Brian, Jeff? I, I think that the closer we get to the election, the less likely it's going to be that Democrats are going to want to give Trump any win mm-hmm. at all, unless they feel that they need it to retain control of the House um, or they need it for Senate seats that they want to protect. Mm-hmm. Um, but the closer we get to Election Day, every day that goes by that we're not making legitimate progress here, I think the, the chances go down. And I also think, depending on you know who the Democratic nominee is, if we do get to a point where this becomes real and it's a viable floor vehicle, how do the remaining candidates weigh in on this? How do they essentially have a veto, so to speak, over what Democrats in the House may or may not do? If, if, if which was, could be a reality. Which could right. be a reality. Right. After if, the convention. If Kamala Harris yeah. is, the, is the presumptive nominee when something is moving or if Elizabeth Warren is and they decide that you know the uh, regulatory rollbacks that may be in a bill are too much and they come out publicly against it, well, you may see Democratic support fall away for it. Right. Senator Klobuchar, who's running for president, put out an infrastructure um, plan last week or the week before. I don't know that others have to such specificity. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, as the debates begin, if, if, if this pops, becomes an issue. an issue that pops up. Because, you know, it's this is a pro, pro-union um, situation. A lot of these jobs are going to be union jobs. It's pro-worker. It's pro-economic yeah. growth. So it wouldn't surprise me if, if the, the different candidates uh, on the Democratic side are, are – force is the wrong word – but compelled to put out mm-hmm. more specific plans. And the more stuff that's out there makes it kind of harder for the Democratic Party, led by Speaker Pelosi, to move away from them um, in, 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 you know – making big leaps between or leaving big gaps between the policies, right? And, and Jeff, I, I know you want to comment here. Let me add a little bit to it, too, and that is it also could make it more difficult for Republicans because if the Democrats are talking too loud about it and it's their, becoming their issue, even though maybe the president wants to, it becomes their issue, it becomes the partisan part of the, the D.C. arena here gets a little complicated. Sure. And I, I do think infrastructure investment is a very attractive idea to talk about in the campaign trail, if only because no one's really opposed to it as right. a concept. <laughs> uh, the problem is it's no one's top issue. It's Everybody's top issue is health care, education, or general affinity for or distaste for the president. But no right. one's saying, I'm, I'm an infrastructure voter or very few people. But you have to remind ourselves, the president has fostered a pretty effective relationship with unions, uh, not typical for most recent Republican presidents, mm-hmm. uh, mainly the unions that do a lot Reagan of... Reagan was really the last, had such a solid relationship with him. The, right. Um, and I think, you know, you look at like the building and construction trades, he he's really tried to foster that relationship. So I think he will have some things to answer for um, if nothing happens between now and 2020, uh, because he did talk about infrastructure a lot on the trail. And so I, I, I'm guessing he'll blame Congress, which is usually a safe bet. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it will be an interesting issue. I also think I'd like to look at the Democrat proposals and see how they propose to pay for them, because it's a very typical thing for a presidential campaign to do is propose a very ambitious infrastructure plan with no pay for. Right. But I would say... 
uh, as both Democrats or Republicans, one thing about pay for is the greatest compromise or bipartisan work is don't have pay for and everyone works together suddenly. Everyone, yeah. I mean, bills pass. Yep. It's just the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It's like, well, let's not worry about those pay fors and. Uh, Next thing you know, everyone's agreed. <laughs> and everything's done. And the deficit goes up. I mean, that that is another, I'll just put this on the table maybe and then leave it at this. And that is um, for a response. One issue that's percolating, which has a definite, you all talked about it in your own ways here, and that is the revenue part of this. And how do you pay for this? The deficit this year, they're now projecting, may tip over a trillion dollars, which for deficit hawks, both on the Republican side and the Democratic side, make them very nervous about anything. Even when they love to build, that becomes an issue. Do you think that will merge into this in any way? Or do you think people try to keep the deficit over there and talk about infrastructure, on the other hand, over in another area? Or do you think, think they'll it, merge? It? Well, there, there are some people, particularly on the Democrat side, that, that suggest that infrastructure doesn't need to be paid for. And that obviously would be massive increases to the deficit. Um, so in that case, I think it would come up. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the revenue proposals that are out there, are a gas tax increase, which hasn't been raised since the 90s, mm-hmm. and, but also the headwinds against that are that the majority of states in the country have raised their gas tax in recent right, to years. to compensate. Um, mm-hmm. To compensate in some ways. You've got a vehicle miles traveled tax, which has um, issues as well. People have a lot of privacy concerns with that, privacy being yep. a massive issue this year. Mm-hmm. And then you have public-private partnerships that uh, – number of Republicans like, but a lot of folks don't, and they don't typically work for the whole country. They only work in densely populated areas, which right. is why they're so viable in High Europe. volume. Um, mm-hmm. but, but they don't work in rural areas. So you have the three camps there. They're somewhat evenly dispersed, and that's why we're at this kind of impasse. Greta, Brian, anything to add to that? You don't have to. Uh, the revenue ones is, you know, it's always complicated. I mean, you know, got to re- have more money. Right. I mean, you know, the it's the perennial problem here in D.C. You know, right. We have a bunch of things we want to do, and, you know, we don't have any solid ways to figure out how to pay for them. And views on how we should do that, I mean, there's— They differ. On both sides of the aisle. You right. know, there's, there's really no agreement— within the Republican or the Democratic conferences on, on the right way to pay for things or if we should pay for them at all. Yeah, I would just add, you know, I, I think um, there are economists on both sides that would, would argue that infrastructure investment returns more to the economy than the tax cuts um, that were passed in a completely partisan way uh, without a single cent paid for last year, which is driving up significantly the deficits that, that you've just I mean, mentioned. It's going to peak over a trillion. So, you know, I think there's... Um, there's a bit of a hangover um, from from Democrats who um, were forced to pay for everything during the during the Obama administration, um, and then as soon as Republicans took control, they passed trillion dollar tax cuts without paying for them. So I think that history matters. We paid for them through growth, Brian. Through growth. <laughs> I, 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 lo- I was waiting for Brian to give the rebuttal to what was going on earlier. I knew it would happen. I couldn't help myself. But that's why I'll just, you, you, as, the, as a Democrat, I'll just remind folks the deficit is now going to be over a trillion dollars. It was $340 billion not long ago, and uh, now we're here. But it does beg, I mean, there, my congressman from Alaska is a Republican but supports a gas tax. You know, because he sees it as an infrastructure investment. That's contrary to most Republicans, but his view is 
they use it, they pay it. Um, well, let me summarize. I would just say this. And first off, you know, from our end of it, from the firm here, the Brownstein firm, I know we get a lot of conversation about infrastructure and investment and what does it mean. And, you know, having this discussion, I think, shows, and especially this last 30 seconds here, shows this great diversity that we have in this firm. And the idea of a client being able to come here and hear the diversity of the opinions and thoughts helps them figure out what's the right strategy. And I know one thing we're very proud of here in Brownstein is when we talk about this subject matter, we will show our colors, put it out there. But then when it's time to get to work to solve that client's problems, we're bipartisan in figuring out. And I think today was a good example. And this is a complicated issue. It's regional on one macro sense. And when you bring it down, there's these partisan pieces that you got to manage somehow. But at the end of the day, if clients are interested in this subject matter, we, we got to solve these problems. And, and so, again, thank you three for being here. This hopefully gives people who are listening a sense of what's going on behind the scenes, a little bit of a partisan activity here, which is good, <laughs> um, but also shows um, that this is one of those issues that are important to the firm here, but also to what's going on in this economy. So thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.